Luke 7.36 is our scripture reading this morning. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar, jar of perfume, and she stood behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had, been invi- who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this, man, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins have been forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent, and we're going to begin a a four-week Advent sermon series then. But uh, you notice we've skipped back in the Gospel of Luke to hear the chapter 7 to a story which is especially appropriate for Thanksgiving. And what I'd like to do this morning is pair this story with um, a blog post that I read a couple of weeks ago by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, An observation that he made about Christians, which I am in entire agreement with. He says this, he says, Most of the serious Christians I know live their lives with an almost constant low-level sense of guilt. Most of the serious Christians I know have this always present frustration with themselves, about themselves, disappointment with themselves. They always experience this like just low-level guilt. It, it's, that is always in the background. It's like a, a sound that is always humming in the background. He says, well, why are we so guilty? Well, let me count the ways. <laughs> we could pray more. We aren't bold enough in evangelism. We watch too much television. Our quiet times are too short and too sporadic. We don't give enough. We don't read to our kids enough. <laughs> our kids eat too many Cheetos and French fries. <laughs> we don't recycle enough. We need to lose 20 pounds. We could use our time better. We could live in a smaller house, we could go on short-term missions projects, we, could, we skip church too often, and the list goes on and on. And what happens is all of these shortcomings, these shortcomings have a cumulative 
effect on our souls. Now, if you were to you know, stick a thermometer in us on any given day, well, the, the feeling, our thoughts, our emotions, what we are experiencing, it's just this constant level of disappointment and guilt. You know, that's our default emotion. And instead of living in a, in a world where everything is gift, and we should probably be walking around with this, this quiet amazement and, and, and state of con- uh, thankful consciousness, instead of that, we, we walk around feeling guilty all the time. Um, and certainly this is a big enough problem. I know that I'm not going to be able to fix it in one sermon. I can't fix it in myself. Uh, it's one of my biggest problems. But I've chosen this passage because it is one of the most encouraging passages in all of the Bible, and it really does model for us a movement away from guilt into gratitude. So let's look at it briefly together. Jesus comes to the home of Simon the Pharisee. We, uh, we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, at least a lot of the Gospel of Luke this past fall, and we've seen a story repeated over and over again. Jesus Christ having a meal with people. The Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus dining with people. Well, here he is in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And all of the customary you know, forms of Middle Eastern hospitality, which should have been provided him, you know, the greeting, Simon should have greeted him at the door with a kiss. Simon should have washed his feet. Simon should have, um, he, sh- he should have, anointed his head with oil. All of those customary greetings that, I mean, if we lived in their culture, we, we would read the story and be shocked. Like, why isn't that here? And the only reason it's not here is because the omission had to be intentional. He invites Jesus to his home intentionally to insult him. That's the only explanation to, for a first century reader that they would, that they would imagine. Uh, instead of treating Jesus Christ as the honored guest in his home, he brings Jesus in to treat him as an inferior and to insult him. But verse 37, somebody keeps that from happening. A woman, let's read it together, verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Some of your translations, if you have your Bibles open, uh, say literally, a woman in that town who was a sinner heard that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. This woman was a quote-unquote sinner. It probably means that she was a prostitute. There are several kind of keys later on in the story which indicate that she was likely a prostitute. It's kind of strange, a prostitute in a Pharisee's house. Have you ever read the story and wondered how did she get in there? Like, did she have to dodge security (laughs) to to make it in? Well, the answer is no. Um, If you remember, Village meals were an open-air event. Village meals, it was customary. You would just keep your doors open and all of your windows open. People could come and go freely. A lot of the people who were not invited as dignitaries to the meal could nevertheless stay and kind of be around the outside of the room, stand along the outside walls or, or outside of the portico and just watch which was a really big thing, you know, a special meal that's taking place in your village. So no, she's not there because she um, dodged the butler. <laughs> it's because she was just part of the crowd. And here's an important observation, very important, and that is she, she had met Jesus before. 
Everything in the story suggests this is not her very first time meeting Jesus Christ. Either Jesus had healed her at some uh, moment, some, uh, some time ago, or he healed one of her friends, or she heard him preaching one day and she was just blown away and it felt liberated from her sin or, or something like that. But he's done something wonderful for her in the past. And so she comes in verse 37 carrying this alabaster joy, uh, jar of perfume in order to anoint Jesus uh, with it. How many of you have a King James version of the Bible, or maybe a King James version sitting in front of you opened right now. What does it say that she brought? I'll give you the answer. (laughs) It says that she brought an alabaster box of ointment, which is not the right translation, actually. Uh, I mean, hey, they're translating in the 17th century. They're going to miss some things that we get right today, because we have a whole lot more of Greek manuscripts and and a better understanding of ancient Greek. But it wasn't ointment. When we think of ointment, we think of kind of a medical salve or a cream that you would rub, you know, rub onto the body. No, no, this is not ointment. This is perfume. Because this is a prostitute. This is, she comes bearing the tool of her trade. Now, bodies, especially when you don't have deodorant and you live in an arid climate and there's no air conditioner, uh, bodies stink. They, they smell incredibly bad. And so she would use this alabaster jar of perfume to anoint her own body, to make her more alluring. So she comes with this, which is probably her most valuable asset that she owns, because perfume was very expensive um, in that day. And here's my guess. As I try and reconstruct the story, here's what I think is happening. She has heard of the dishonor that Jesus had been shown. For us, dishonor, maybe we, we don't think that's such a big deal. But it, for them, it was. This would, have been, this would have spread around the village like wildfire. The, the kind of uh, lack of hospitality that had been shown to him, she hears about this. Or maybe she observes it firsthand. So she goes into the room with the idea that she's going to treat Jesus with the the love and honor that he deserves. She walks up to him. Remember the way that they ate at tables is you would kind of prop yourself up on one elbow and the table was really low and your legs would extend out from the table. She walks up to him with the idea either to anoint his feet, which are extended behind him, or anoint his head. But what happens when she does this? She, She just experienced an emotional breakdown. She goes with the idea of anointing him, and all of a sudden, she just crumbles. Verse 38, it says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his, his feet with her tears, and she, she wiped them with her hair. She wiped them with her hair, which is another, this is another clue that she's a prostitute, because no self-respecting Jewish woman would ever let her hair down in public. Some of the commentators I read suggested that letting your hair down in public, culturally for them, would be the equivalent of going topless in public, uh, what it would be for us. She lets her hair down and begins to dry his feet with her hair, which was scandalous. I'd be completely defying all social norms. And here we have a, a remarkable contrast, really. There are two religious leaders 
suddenly in the presence of one sinful woman, one of those leaders understands righteousness. His understanding of righteousness is such that it causes him to be repulsed by the sinner. He's disgusted by, by this. The other religious leader understands righteousness to allow him to be touched, and not only touched, but touched by a woman whose hair's down and, and is topless. That's how he sees. Uh, we've, seen, uh, we've, we've seen this many times in the Gospel of Luke, that the more outcast and despised a person is, the more likely Jesus Christ is to allow them to serve him and to do something for him. Haven't we seen that? Many times. So there he is. He is allowing her to touch him with her hair, and he interprets this as the ultimate act of gratitude. Verse 47. The punchline of the whole story. He says, she loves me because she has been forgiven much. All of her debts have been canceled. What do you think that meant to a prostitute? To hear that all the debt of her sexual sin had been canceled. How great of a debt do you think you've accrued when you sell your body and break the, the, uh, the seventh commandment every single day, multiple times? How great it must have been to hear that all of her debt had been canceled and thus this overflow of gratitude, which leads me to three points. Briefly, I always say briefly, and never fulfill that promise. Number one, I really believe that Satan, Satan seeks to paralyze us with guilt and shame, which is tragic because it flat out denies the grace of the gospel. He seeks to paralyze us with low level and high level constant feeling of guilt and shame uh, because it flat out denies Ephesians chapter 1 and all that Paul says about the gospel that, uh, quote, out of all the people in the world, God has chosen you, God has handpicked you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He has rescued you from the, the dominion of darkness and has brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. All of that is true. And what's tragic is that all you and I can think about is our shortcomings. Instead of walking around with, with such gratitude, we are focusing on all the things that we, we've just failed in. Um, go back to the list that I made at the very beginning of the sermon. Think about some of those categories I used. Uh, not praying enough, not serving enough, too much Netflix. All of, you notice that um, everything on that list, like, none of it is necessarily sinful. All of it... All of those are really categories of prudence and wisdom. They deal with possible infractions or possible ways which we'd like to do different or better. But, you know, all of those are areas that are notoriously difficult to, to get. Uh, um, like, I mean, what Christian would ever confess to having prayed enough? What Christian would ever confess to having, you know, given Enough. I mean, enough always means just a little bit more than I'm doing. It's a very nebulous category. It's just a nebulous category that I never fulfill. I mean, all of us 
feel terrible about prayer or evangelism or giving because, probably because, we insist on a certain standard of practice which approximates perfection when all the Bible actually does is insist on a general on a general principle of practice. For example, the Bible says every Christian must give generously and contribute to the needs of the saints. That we can agree on absolutely. But what does generosity look like? I mean, how much are we to give and how much are we to retain? How much do we donate to the church? How much do we designate for mercy? There is no formula that says that you have done enough. No, and Paul never suggests that You're supposed to fit that standard. What he does in 2 Corinthians is he emphasizes two things. Just the blessing of generosity. And secondly, the gospel-rooted motivation of generosity as opposed to the the chipping away at your soul of guilt and shame. He never guilts and shames anybody into doing enough. Now, I understand we ought to feel guilty sometimes. <laughs> we ought to feel guilty sometimes because we are guilty sometimes. We are guilty of sin and complacency. And, but when we are guilty of those things, what are we supposed to do? We, we, you confess those sins and you repent of those sins. But what we ought not to be doing, we ought not to live our lives in this constant feeling like I'm a failure. I'm a failure as a father, as a pastor. I'm a terrible Christian. I'm a terrible dad. Not, we should not feel that way if our debts have been canceled and if our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. We should not feel that way if the gospel is true. I shouldn't always, and maybe I'm just talking about myself, how I always feel like, you know, I'm a, a failed Christian bum. But that is not, that is not God speaking. That is Satan. It is certainly not the grace of God that flows, that overflows into gratitude. And I understand, yes, sometimes we we ought to be, um, we ought to feel guilty. I understand that we aren't the kind of husbands and fathers and mothers and Christians that we wish we were. But I can almost guarantee you, if you were to step back and look at the overall trajectory of your life, the overall trajectory of your Christian life. I guarantee you, you are not the the husband, father, mother that you were 10 years ago or that you were 20 years ago. I guarantee you that there is some more Christ-likeness in you than than was there a decade ago. It's slow. I mean, sanctification is painfully slow. It is a painfully slow, incremental process. But... Well, you know, we shouldn't keep we shouldn't keep focusing on our shortcomings, I don't think. We should remember this week of all weeks that we are the prostitute in this story whose debts have been erased. That's number one. Number two. In the second season of the NBC sitcom The Office, the good people of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company decide to hold a secret Santa gift exchange at their annual Christmas party. This was season two, episode 10, maybe, rather, their Christmas episode. And the rules were very simple. They always are for these type of parties. $20 is the max. You can go out and you can buy something new up to $20. 
You don't even have to buy anything new if you don't want to. You can pick up a little trinket in your home, wrap it up and bring it and set it in the stack. But, but yeah, $20 is the max. Only Michael, to no one's great surprise, decides $20, nobody wants to do just $20. Michael goes out. Does anybody remember what he does? He goes out and he buys a $400 iPod. <laughs> and he wraps up the $400 iPod and he puts it in the gift stack. What effect do you think that had on the party dynamics? Maybe, maybe you think people were impressed by his generosity. Oh, that was such a, an extravagantly kind thing. Uh, no, actually what ends up happening is it, it, skews, it skews the social environment entirely. People are getting their feelings hurt. People are you know, trying to steal the present. Um, kind of, maybe it was a white elephant gift exchange where you steal the present. Uh, everybody's getting their, their feelings hurt. Um, and what, what happens, and this is true of all great, great uh, stories, it highlights something we implicitly know, we instinctively know. We instinctively know that not all gifts are appropriate. Not all gifts fit the culturally acceptable choreography for gift giving. Funny that you would speak about that book, Brian, at the start of the service, because that's the one I'm referring to here too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there is a cultural choreography of gift giving. If the, the, the neighbor that lives next, next to you, if the, the couple next door leaves a small Christmas present on your doorstep or in your mailbox, what do you do? You reciprocate by giving them a small present in return. But what you don't do, nobody gives a diamond ring to somebody who's not their wife. Wouldn't that be creepy? If all of a sudden you know, your spouse is getting a diamond ring from another guy, that's, it's totally Inappropriate. It's totally inappropriate to um, usually buy somebody else underwear. Or, <laughs> you know? Not all gifts are appropriate. There's, a, there's an established social protocol. There's always been an established protocol. Well, in the first century, this was the protocol. If you had a wealthy patron, it was their job to... Remember, we talked about this one too, about to give gifts to the people underneath them. The wealthy patron would be generous and he would, well, the way that the expected thing was that if you got a gift from your patron, you would give a gift in return. And if you really wanted to honor your patron, you would give a greater gift in return. Because by giving a greater gift to your patron, you were, you were demonstrating their uh, initial great generosity on your behalf. So that you would publicly show yourself grateful. You give a gift in return. And then in that way, there's, it's basically a, a reciprocal cycle which is going on. There's this cycle of reciprocity. Gift is returned for gift. And that way you might benefit from an even greater gift in the future. So the cycle of reciprocity is perpetuated. And it goes all the way back to the days of the Greeks. The ancient Greeks and, and Athens and so forth. All of this gift-giving dance was revolutionized when God the Father gave the gift of his only begotten Son. Because in giving the Son, there was a gift so extravagant you could never pay it back. 
When God the Father gave His Son, and likewise, when, when the Son gave you forgiveness of your sins and new life, that is something that completely disrupted the gift choreography of the first century. Not only could you not pay Him back for that, but you shouldn't even try to pay Him back. Because to try and pay God back uh, is really to trivialize the greatness of the gift in the first place. You know, sometimes I've heard pastors say, maybe I was one of the pastors who said it, um, God has given you Jesus, so now you give your life back to God, as though you know, our Christian service is somehow repaying God for the gift of salvation. No, that's not the appropriate response. What is the appropriate response for the, for the gift of Christ, of forgiveness, of resurrection, of the future? What is the appropriate response? It's to receive it. <laughs> It's just to receive it and to strive as best you can to appreciate this gift. It's, it's not to turn around and, and repay him back. No, no. It's just to receive it with open hands and to taste, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to open your mouth wide and to eat and drink and be merry around the table of thanksgiving and just to receive it. They've done a, this, uh, it's a psychology experiment that the results of which have been duplicated many times before. A, psych, a psychology professor sends out Christmas cards to a large list of complete strangers three weeks before Christmas. You send it out to people you don't even know in order to test our culture's idea of, uh, of reciprocity. And, and what happens in all of the psychology experiments? Christmas cards come streaming back. From, from people that you've never even met before, from people who don't even inquire as to the identity of the original sender, they simply receive that card and automatically they send one in return. But brothers and sisters, Christianity is not reciprocity. Christianity is about a gift that blows up the entire system. The only appropriate response to it is... Uh, is trying to, to build and strengthen the muscle of gratitude. Thirdly, C.S. Lewis in one of his letters to Malcolm gives what I think is a marvelous piece of advice on how we can strengthen the muscle of gratitude. Letters to Malcolm, is, Malcolm is a fictional character, but it's, it's Lewis's way of uh, trying to instruct Christians on the, the discipline and duty of prayer. And here's what he says. He says, Quote, I have deliberately tried to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I've deliberately tried to make every pleasure into a channel of, of adoration. Every, everything lovely, every beautiful mountain valley, every delicious food, a great book, a piece of music. Is, is, as soon as I recognize that something is pleasurable, I say, my oh my, oh my how good of God to give me this. No sooner has the strawberry ice cream touched my tongue, Lewis says, than instinctively I try to ask myself the question, what kind of God would create this? And what kind of God would give this to me? My, oh my, how good of him to do this. Isn't that a great way to think? As soon as a pleasure, as soon as you are aware that you're experiencing some pleasure, you channel it back in adoration and gratitude. Closely related to this concept is one that I came across this week. It's proposed by a Christian philosopher at Loyola Marymount University. And he calls it gratitude density. 
Gratitude density. Gratitude, he says, is fostered by the practice of giving deeper consideration into all that, uh, deeper consideration to all that went into what we have. All that, all the work of the people behind it, all of the materials from so many places. Gratitude density means deliberately drawing our attention to such mundane facts as all that went into the creation of a single pencil. I mean, pencils are fabulous things. Have you ever looked at one of these and, and thought, look, what, all that had to go into the creation of a single pencil. I mean, the wood, getting the wood cut like this, filling it with graphite, the paint, the eraser. I mean, go ahead, later today, get on YouTube and, and, find, and just type in how a pencil is made. Gratitude density. You look at the things around you and all that went into them, all that went into an airplane, all that went into your car, the roads, um, and especially, especially, all that went into your salvation. Because you can play the same principle of gratitude density with all that God has done in your salvation. The, all that went into the forgiveness of sins, the cancellation of your debt, the crucifixion, the, the crucifixion, the strange, dark, divine plan in which Jesus Christ would take our shame and guilt in order to free us from our shame and guilt so that we wouldn't be trapped by these spiritual forces of constant low-level shame and guilt. Ah, contemplate all that went into my salvation, your salvation. Finally, I'm, I'm done. I'll conclude with this image. Jimmy Stewart is uh, seated around a table with eight of his little kids. In the movie, the 1965 film, Shenandoah, he's sitting there and he says to his kids, now your mother wanted all of you raised as good Christians and I might not be able to do that thorny job as well as she could, but I can do a little something about your manners. And he uh, knocks the, the son who has his baseball cap on. He, he knocks him on the shoulder and he takes his, his cap off. And then they, the most famous part of the movie, he prays the prayer of non-thanksgiving. The non-thanksgiving prayer. Remember that one? Lord, we cleared this land. We plowed it. We sowed it. We harvested it. We cooked the harvest. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't done it all ourselves. We worked dog bone hard for every crumb and morsel. But we thank you just the same anyway, Lord, for this food we're about to eat. Amen. <laughs> it's the non-Thanksgiving prayer. The, you know, look, what, look at all that I, I have done, all that I have accomplished. That's not going to be our prayer this week. No. No. Where did I get my IQ feels like it's pretty small but where did i get my iq where did i get where did i get my opportunities where did where did you get the place you were born where did you from where did you get your education where did you get the social structures around you which you had nothing to do with but encouraged you all along the way where did where did you get your food and how many how many of your debts did you get canceled and forgiven now, brothers and sisters this week you know i echo your words, and I add to them, publicly acknowledge around the table that all that I have, everything that I, I have, I've received as gift. Life is gift. 
Christ is gift. Everything is a gift from the Father of lights, the giver of every good and perfect gift, who has provided me something that I can never repay and never should try to repay. I just receive it with a grateful heart. And you should too. Amen.